Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for tuning in to Confuoco. As I continue work on producing more episodes for you, I thought it'd be fun to revisit some of my favorite conversations that have been released so far. So for this week, we have a rebroadcast of our episode from September of 2020 with the president and artistic director of the Sphinx organization, Afa Dworkin. The question of the week we tackled together was, why is a lack of diversity harmful to classical music? In the episode, we discuss, among other things, why classical music cannot be considered a meritocracy, steps organizations can take to address diversity in a meaningful way, the implications of excluding certain groups of people from our ranks, and why this issue is poised to be an existential threat to our art form in this country. This was one of my favorite conversations thus far, and I often find myself thinking deeply about this issue and return to this episode often for guidance and inspiration. I have some really exciting guests and interesting topics coming up for you, and in the meantime, please enjoy this rebroadcast of my conversation with Afa Dworkin. Welcome to Con Fuoco, a podcast about classical music and its future. I'm your host, Daniel Cho. I'm a conductor and violinist currently based in Oregon, where I serve as conducting fellow of the Eugene Symphony and assistant conductor of the Oregon Mozart Players and Eugene Opera. Each week, I will be discussing one question about the field of classical music with a guest who I believe can provide valuable insight into where we are as a field and what directions we should take as we move forward into a rapidly changing world. Afa Dworkin is the president and artistic director of the Sphinx organization, where she oversees all fundraising strategic and artistic initiatives. Founded in 1997, the Sphinx organization has four program areas, education and access, artist development, performing artists, and arts leadership, which form a pipeline that develops and supports diversity and inclusion in classical music at every level of our field, music education, performing artists, repertoire programmed, the communities represented in audiences, and artistic and administrative leadership. The Sphinx organization reaches more than 100,000 students and artists, as well as live and broadcast audiences of more than 2 million annually. Ms. Dworkin's leadership of the organization is informed by her musical training, over 25 years of experience in the field, as well as her international corporate experience as a trilingual interpreter and executive assistant to the president of ARCO, the international oil and gas company in Baku in Azerbaijan. Classical music has a diversity problem. According to a 2016 study by League of American Orchestras, 
African Americans made up 1.8% of orchestra members in 2014. Latinx people made up 2.5%. Between 2010 and 2014, board members of orchestras were 3-4% African American and 1-2% Latinx. Orchestra staffs were 5-7% African American and 3-5% Latinx. This study only applies to one facet of classical music, orchestras, but this issue extends all throughout the classical music landscape, including opera companies and music schools. The purpose of this episode is to plainly and objectively outline the existential threat that the lack of diversity poses to the American field of classical music. Not only this, I truly believe that diversity in classical music education, performance, repertoire, and leadership has the potential to uplift our field to heights unseen and could usher in a new era of our art form. When communities are diverse, there are more possibilities, there is more excellence, and lives are improved. History has shown this. This week, we will be discussing the question, Why is the lack of diversity harmful to classical music? Please enjoy my conversation with the great Afa Dworkin. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to join you. So I wanted to break this issue down to its most basic level for two reasons. First, so that anyone who doesn't believe that a lack of diversity is an issue in classical music can be convinced uh, without approaching them like they're an evil, diabolical racist. Um, (laughs) And secondly, so that for those who do believe that classical music needs more diversity, so that they have the tools to really understand this concept so that it's broken down for them and so that they can better understand this concept and go out in the world and fight for diversity. So um, why is the lack of diversity harmful to classical music? Well, there are probably a number of ways to look at it, but to me, two center in my mind, uh, which relate to one another, but they're standalone, I think, um, as arguments. One is, I think, maybe more practical. So for all those classical music lovers, aficionados, practitioners who believe that artistic merit is central um, to uh, to our field, to this genre, I think it's a worthwhile thing to think about because outside of our genre, our sector of performing arts and certainly classical music, it, it is a well-known, uh, well-understood and well-researched fact that we are not excellent unless we are diverse. And by that, I mean um, diverse in, the, in a way of welcoming of and engaging of diverse points of view, diverse cultural backgrounds, diverse sounds, diverse ways of expressing ourselves. And if we care about um, the artistic merit, and if we care about excellence, then I think it's a good time for us to evaluate what that is. And if we strive for excellence, I think it behooves all of us to evolve to a more complete um, and, and really more inspiring definition of excellence, which cannot work 
devoid of diversity. Um, so for, that is a standpoint that specifically addresses those who believe strongly in the survival and thriving of classical music as a genre, which I think there's it's certainly a, a wide audience for that. Um, and the other reason is about, it relates to the survival of classical music, but from a different, more socially based standpoint. And that is that if classical music is to survive and thrive, it, it should want to be relevant. And if it ceases to be relevant, it you know, is an endangered, sort of a field then. Um, and if we think about it this way, is that for centuries, certain groups, certain um, ethnic and cultural and racial groups have been intentionally excluded from classical music. And for centuries, uh, a status quo, both explicitly and implicitly, we as a field have said that's okay because we've remained homogenous and not welcoming and not interested in really representation. So now it's a matter of our orchestras, our opera companies, our performing arts institutions, our conservatories, essentially being irrelevant to groups of population, to groups of people who um, are talented and motivated in every way, but entirely separated from classical music as a genre. If we do not intentionally include, then it is deeply harmful to our genre because eventually it's going to cease to have any connection or any relevance or any reciprocity with the communities in which we reside and which we claim to serve. So from that standpoint, um, I think there's a great deal of urgency and a, and a great deal of opportunity to change that around and really engage all people of all backgrounds and all walks of life, and certainly people of color who are um, dramatically underrepresented as compared to population representation in the US and our numbers in classical music. So from that standpoint, if we care about the genre um, and its health, so to speak, we would want to think intentionally about ways to engage and be diverse. Adding on to what you said, I truly believed for most of my life that classical music was a meritocracy, where if you worked hard and if you practiced hard, then you would have success. And in a world that there are elements that are unfair, that feels like a really great thing. And if we don't have diversity in classical music, then success is just a matter of privilege. It's just a matter of you were allowed to join into this club. Theoretically, it is a valid aspirational thought that classical music or performing arts are a meritocracy. But it is just that, aspirational, because in practice, it is entirely illogical for us to think that if a young person who has an affinity towards, say, the cello, um, who has not had the resources or the opportunities to be exposed to it, but, but suddenly perhaps had an encounter with the instrument and fell in love with the sound and now wishes to study and, and practically excel at that instrument, and they are, say, at age of 11 or 12, it would be silly to think that we can equalize their development with somebody who studied from, say, the age of five or six and has had access to weekly lessons, you know, musicianship courses, ear training, and, you know, resources to really build this thing out and, and have it become part of their life. Um, I think no matter how hard you work, 
um, you are always going to be discriminated um, against even if you didn't look differently. So now let's add to that uh, the dimensions that are inherent to American culture here. Um, it's a person of color, particularly black or brown. There's already an automatic assumption that will come along with that appearance. And particularly if somebody learns that perhaps they haven't studied for as long, you know, they're immediately written off as anyone who can essentially compete based upon merit. So that argument breaks down fairly early. And if we take it all the way into then conservatory training and onward to say, so-called blind auditions in orchestras, uh, the, the argument has fallen apart probably about a dozen more times because it becomes something that doesn't um, it doesn't really exist as a standalone merit-based argument since before there was any opportunity for merit or illustration or development of that talent, perception has already, both perception and reality has already swallowed up that argument. And then, of course, we get to, well, if we have a screen, isn't it then ultimately the most objective way to judge somebody? Um, again, aspirationally, totally laudable. In practice, before I got to that screen, someone's already read my resume and decided whether or not I am deemed worthy and they could assume a whole lot of other things based upon my background. So once I did show up, first of all, there's already a lack of objectivity because that prejudgment already occurred. And then it's the judgment day and I'm behind the screen for seven or eight minutes. And then the screen comes right up and I have the opportunity to showcase my talents otherwise and already other elements of judgment have entered in because I look a certain way. So in other words, sure, it could have worked in a theoretical world, but in practice, it doesn't because we actually don't have blind auditions, number one, and we don't have equity of access early on. So I think because of that, it doesn't exist. And if we care to equalize that piece, and if we care to create an objective environment where anyone who works hard could essentially succeed, then we ought to examine how we do it and be prepared to get a little uncomfortable with changing our processes. Um, as the artistic director and the president of the Sphinx organization, an organization that is fighting for diversity in classical music. What have you seen that points to the benefits of diversity within classical music? Well, I have the good fortune to do the work that I do and feel incredibly inspired every day by the talent that I encounter. Um, I think probably the most humbling thing is that there is such an abundance of talent and affinity toward a genre that's entirely transformed my life and gave me access toward a pathway that you know has allowed me to build a life in classical music. So I am constantly inspired by the amount of talent, just boundless really within these communities. I'm also entirely inspired by volumes of works that are being discovered um, constantly by colleagues, many of our alumni, myself directly through my repertoire research which are works that date back to contemporaries of Mozart and onward, and of course, countless composers today whose voices are entirely suppressed and not heard, unless it's a performative time of year, so to speak. Um, so to me, the most important thing is to recognize and celebrate the talent that's there, and then think about ways to empower the talent and uplift it and then infuse it into classical music because it has a rightful place. Um, the benefit to the field itself is also enormous and not to be underestimated. I think 
the the sheer impact of having you know prior to sphinx's existence it would be it would be seldom then what would one would go to a major symphony hall and hear a concerto performed by a soloist of um, black or latinx descent and now this happens a minimum of 20 times a year i think the sheer impact of being able to discover showcase enforce validate and share the talent that's there is is enormous i think it changes the minds and lives and ears and 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 souls of audiences who witness such an act it is also an incredible benefit to classical music um, to have input and perspective that is informed by cultural experiences of those who have been systemically uh, and repeatedly excluded so in some ways it's you know you could call it the tiger woods effect you can call it the wakanda effect i don't even feel right using the word discovery because how do you discover something that's always been there but maybe exposure and and enforce um and give opportunity to shine to this talent is i think incredibly important um to classical music and its patrons to recognize that talent does not distinguish by demographics by zip codes by culture by ethnicity talent is abundant and it's everywhere it's about culturing it and it's about capturing that um, the beauty that's inherent in in that music making and understanding that we implicitly perpetuate the myth of talent somehow not being present within communities of color if we do not intentionally change who we engage to be our soloists our conductors our you know full cycle composers um, that will dominate the stage for 12 weeks every time there's an opportunity to program the entire cycle of Mahler symphonies i think one must pause and wonder why that's being done repetitively and i'm not saying in place of i'm saying in addition to because um i think we're all better for it um if our programming is infused by that diversity it ultimately benefits the fields benefits our audiences and it changes perspectives and then therefore sets up a scene or an arena for our field our genre not only to survive but ideally thrive it also it really speaks to the power and the the beauty of classical music that these groups that have been marginalized are continuously fighting to try to have a place in it rather than just walking away and saying this isn't even worth it and that there are so many passionate musicians of groups that are not welcomed and are not represented on the stage is really speaks to the power of the music itself absolutely it it is obviously as we all know an incredible gift it is a language it is a movement it is something that unites all of us it's something that erases borders and boundaries that are rooted in beliefs false or otherwise um i think it's beyond politics it's beyond uh really any preconceptions and to me it would be an incredibly poignantly um unfortunate fact if uh people of color began to walk away from the genre and feel that they don't belong because the genre will suffer and we will have missed the opportunity to enrich it and evolve it so i think i always tell this anecdote because uh when when we assemble the sphinx symphony which is our professional all black and latino orchestra that performs together uh for a week in february during our global convening um they also mentor in and network with our youngest generation of artists who compete during the sphinx competition and our biggest challenge is not assembling that orchestra is not caring for it logistically 
is not programming for it. Our single most significant notable challenge is how to say no to folks because I can only fit so many people on stage. So our solution eventually became such that we just assembled two orchestras um, <laughs> because, you know, for the junior division competition, it could be younger folks who are earlier in their career. And for the senior division um, concert, it, it, it's, it's more of our sort of um, veteran musicians who have played with the Sphinx Symphony for more than two decades. And even still, I have only one challenge. That is how to say to some of these incredibly accomplished, poised musicians that I can't invite them this year because there are only so many parts and so much music we can fit in. And I can't extend the stage at the orchestra hall to include 200 people. Because, and I think that speaks to your point is that the talent is abundant and that um, connection and allegiance and, and really commitment to classical music is nothing short of admirable. Um, and I think that should be good news because for all those um, skeptics who, or, or those faint of heart who say that, well, I really love to diversify my orchestra, my music school, my conservatory, but it's just that there are no musicians of color. I think this should be good news because there's no pipeline issue. There's no availability issue and there's no issue of uh, presence of talent. So now it's only about action. From my conversations with my fellow young musicians, I think there's an overall picture that we have of arts organizations where either they are completely and absolutely dedicated to diversification and um, creating diversity within their institution, or it essentially functions as a kind of marketing tool where they throw out a picture of young black children in their audience at their education concert and that's about that's about the only action they take is this a fair picture that we young musicians are seeing and um if so how how can leaders of organizations make diversity a priority in a really meaningful way certainly what you recount resonates no pun intended, with many of the stories and experiences described uh, by our alumni and many artists who have been part of institutions who say they're looking to diversify and change the paradigm, etc. I think that is definitely the case, but I think what's more important is what can we do differently now? Um, in the wake of the twin pandemics and the incredible tragedies that have befallen our country since the spring, really for, for centuries, but, but really it has been such a trying time since the murder of George Floyd, um, Elijah McLean, Brianna Taylor, and so many others. I think what has occurred differently and perhaps has given me some amount of hope is that there's been a certain unified sense of speaking about these tragedies in ways of needing to make a difference. I think it's an important step forward. Um, I also think it's everybody's fight. It's not just music schools, it's not just orchestras. Often they get um, blamed quite significantly, but then there's the rest of the pathway uh, within classical music that also should hold, should be held accountable. I think the piece that I would urge all of us to shift is less attention paid to marketing campaigns and performative statements which get you know put out there and somehow are so overvalued um, in some ways it, it has felt like a gesture desperate gesture for absolution 
to say that we st we stand behind. This is a solidarity statement. I don't think it's bad. I think it's great to have solidarity statement. Don't get me wrong, but I think the time has come to move past it. We stand in solidarity, and as such, we're going to do this, and or as such, we are changing our programming in such a manner that you know, fifty percent of all of our public facing performances will now contain at least a work by a black or Latinx composer. Period for the next five or ten years, or you know, if it's a performing arts institution, we're setting our budget, and as such, we're committing you know, ten, fifteen percent of our entire annual spending toward issues of diversity and inclusion either in perpetuity or five or ten years some kind of a significant commitment that says we may not know the answers but we're committing to solving it and the way you do that is you know budgets are moral documents we are what we repeatedly perform on stage all of those are visible authentic ways to show that we wish to go beyond that one picture of an african-american violinist or a latinx flute player um, that shows up in our marketing campaign because what we're actually doing is we're saying we are doing something differently i think the recognition that now isn't the time to point toward what might have been done right five to ten fifteen years ago or last year or how maybe there's been some incremental growth in your recruitment and retention as it relates to um, students of color now is the time to say we are very specifically doing this differently because we can't expect to wish for different results and follow same exact procedures and processes it's like entirely crazy so because of that i think pointing toward, toward those differences and committing both what we perform whom we recruit also, and not just in terms of students, but very much staff and faculty, making a commitment, a market commitment, to ensure that every opening, every opportunity at any institution is going to have a focus area, um, whereby we're going to actively engage from pools that we've ignored for decades before, so that our applicant pool can be representative of our communities and representative of those solidarity statements we made just a few short months ago. Um, I think we have a short window of opportunity to do this and to change the paradigm where folks are still shaken by what has been occurring and feel empowered or maybe motivated to make a difference. I think it will take the entire field though. It'll take all of us, each one of us, and more than once, but consistently until we get to such a point where our concert halls, our music schools, our classrooms, our orchestra stages, our opera companies look like the communities in which we reside. For many pessimists, mm -hmm. they would say that real change happens at the top and comes down and there's really no meaningful change will happen until it starts happening at the very top of the classical music world. And for many of us, the top orchestras, the top opera companies, top music schools, they act as though what they're doing is above the concerns of society. It's we're classical, we are the institution of classical music. We are, there's, some, there's something divine about it and we shouldn't be talking about earthly matters and we'll, we're just here at the top floating and you all figure out what's gonna happen and then come join us when you're ready. Is this a correct assessment by these pessimists and if so why why is this happening and how can what can we do to change this paradigm you know i think um there is validity to this sentiment 
um, unfortunately, we are also a field of followers. Um, so, but there's, it's, I think as most things in life, nothing is absolute and one dimensional. I think while um, there is certainly, it's a valid argument to make to say that there's a, there's a sense that major institutions feel that they're impervious um, to, to these um, kind of these expectations and they essentially will survive and, and um, should need to succumb to any kind of change um, and be exemplary in this area. Um, but I think that's something that, that is, A, I've seen it shift a bit um, or begin to shift. But I also think importantly, that is not to discount a smaller institution or a mid-sized music school or a conservatory, um, a smaller opera company or a smaller orchestra that is more agile and ready to change and set an example for something new and something socially responsible. I think any pioneers who step forward and show their commitment through action uh, with sincerity and decisiveness are, are to be congratulated, applauded, and followed. Yes, I think it would be ideal if the top 10 music schools and conservatories, top 10 opera companies and top 10 orchestras, and say top 10 performing arts presenters came together form some kind of explicit or implicit um, consortium or coalition and loudly and plainly committed to um, go beyond performative diversity and say what we're going to do is we're shifting very specifically what we commit to engage and perform. You know, 15% of everything that goes on stage is going to be representative of composers from Black and African diaspora. And, um, you know, another 10 or 15% will be by Latinx composers, period. And the rest of it is going to have the so-called canon. Um, you know, and if, if that many institutions said, you know, for a long time, we've been this elite conservatory or elite orchestra, and we certainly are committed to merit, but the way that we define merit now is synonymous with inclusion. And as such, we commit to say that, you know, our faculty, our students will have a 10% spike in representation and say a graduated goal of getting to 30 or 40%. I think that would certainly be a strong statement. Um, do I think that's realistic? Not at the moment. We certainly don't have a good track record to show that. Um, do I think it would be powerful if it came from the top? Absolutely, no question about it, but I think we should welcome and encourage and help along the way any institution without regard to rank or budget size who is ready to make that commitment. And I have seen some inspiring examples of things that are um, these expressed commitments. And certainly in the last several months, there have been important faculty appointments made in major music schools and conservatories, which have involved some of our artists and, and other artists of color who I am certain will contribute immensely to the fabric and really the new definition of, of, uh, of excellence at these institutions. Um, so I'm excited to see some of the change. I, I think we've got a long way to go. And, and certainly what I've also heard more of is members of boards of directors and trustees at various institutions are beginning to speak about diversity as an area of priority. And that would be unheard of, you know, even several years ago. So there, there is a sense of needing to mobilize. Um, there's a sense of reprioritizing it. We just need to push it further. Um, and, and certainly I call upon any and every ally 
any leader of a major institution or mid-sized institution or the smallest institution to make it a priority um, because that pioneering work will take us farther and ultimately will benefit all of us. One of the biggest problems with diversity in classical music begins at the very bottom. One of the things that shattered my own reality was the realization that the only reason that I got to the point where I am as a professional musician uh, was, I mean, I did work hard, but my parents were able to afford my instruments, my lessons, the travel required to drive into San Francisco for the prep organization and for the youth orchestra, for ensemble fees, for all these things that add up to be extremely expensive. And this kind of creates this vicious cycle where the people who are most able to gain the skills necessary to be professional musicians are generally uh, wealthy. This excludes many communities that are that don't are, that don't have this kind of wealth, which are pr- particularly black and brown communities. And so, what can everyday musicians who want to make change but feel as, as though they don't really have the power to do so? What do you suggest these musicians do to help? Well, one of the ways I've seen musicians, teaching artists particularly step it up is to seek out more intentional ways to um, establish scholarship programs within their own private studios and um, actively engage young people who are talented and, and ready and poised to study, but maybe lack instruments or access to um, to this training and perhaps aren't necessarily connected to sort of the, the teaching elite or performance opportunities. So I think making the diver- diversification of our teaching studios inten- an intentional priority has been something that I've been inspired by. Um, and I know this work is incremental, but I think every increment matters. Every one student who couldn't afford lessons or um, necessarily couldn't afford an instrument, uh, in, in, if, it's, if it's a difference made by one teacher or a handful of teachers, it's, it, it's that many more that we've helped. So I think those are some of the basic ways in which to um, embrace diversity as a priority. Um, and, and of course, on our end, there are also many institutions that do have scholarship programs. Sometimes it is about awareness. It's not always just access. Sometimes families, you know, who might be struggling to make ends meet may not be aware that there are resources within their community that can be helpful. It's a matter of being introduced to those resources and connected to a teacher that might believe in a talent of my son and daughter who's ready to study, but maybe needs a little bit of a push there with an instrument or access to sheet music and, and other um, elements that end up all adding up. So, and, you know, many orchestras have scholarship programs and other community-based initiatives. There's system-based programs in many of our communities. Many of the larger cities have that, where um, that access can be and oftentimes is, is equalized. But if it's not part of one's universe, um, then sometimes those resources get overlooked. Um, so I've seen certainly a lot there in terms of um, some of that kind of advocacy uh, and networking that can be done by uh, by teaching artists. The other piece that's probably worth mentioning is that, yes, studying an instrument is an absolute privilege. And, um, and I think recognition of that privilege is a step that's, that's, that's of import. Um, but I will also say that talent is such a powerful thing. And um, what I've encountered is that for our preparatory programs, for example, our summer intensives, 
where we teach young people of Black and Latinx descent ages 11 through 17. It is a formative point during which I think many of the young people do determine and our families determine whether or not to continue studying and whether you're going to go to college for music. There is an absolute abundance of talent and preparedness. I would say when you, when I, when I encounter um, the candidates for these programs, you know, we, we serve nearly 90 of these young musicians every summer on the campuses of Cleveland Institute of Music, um, as well as Juilliard School and Curtis Institute. And it's a very competitive program. We can't, we serve maybe a third of musicians that apply, so it's difficult to get in. Now, all of our programs are absolutely full scholarship. Once someone auditions and, and, and gets accepted, then there's not an expense. But even despite the, dis the economic disparities and challenges that come along with um, studying an instrument, even despite that, there is this incredibly um, generous, wonderful pool of young artists who are ready. And, you know, in a couple of short years, they can be ready to audition to any music school or conservatory if they so choose. While I definitely want to affirm there's a disparity and there's a difference in access, I also want to argue that even despite that, there's really not an issue of a pipeline in some ways, because there's an abundance of talent and there's tremendous playing that already exists at that level amongst Black and Latinx musicians. So for any music school or conservatory that's seeking to do things differently, they should know that the pool is there. Um, so if they so wish to empower it and include it, it's only a matter of reaching out and engaging. Many classic musicians, myself included, have had the experience of when we do try to bring these issues up uh, within within our community, there are people who push back and say that um, discussing issues of equity and inclusion are uh, so-called politics and that politics don't have a place in the classical music space, which I find to be an exclusionary attitude. And I don't think that we should be afraid to talk about anything because how can we find solutions to problems if we decide that there isn't a problem. So do you have any advice on how to speak to people with this kind of attitude that say, you know, they, they, they almost approach it like it's, oh, that is stressful. I don't want to, we don't want to deal with it. Can you just not, can we just not talk about that? Do you have any advice on how to talk to people like this? Yeah, I mean, certainly very unfortunate as as a point of attitude. Um, my potential advice might be to say that um, we don't have the luxury to exclude um, conversation on access um, and race because we actively have, for historical reasons, for political reasons, for other reasons, we have actively... Um, excluded that topic, and that has led us toward this homogeneity and lack of representation. So if we agree that that is something we want to shift, then a discussion is where it starts. Um, you know, and I think sometimes I bring in the conversation about women. Um, myself being a classically trained musician who's a woman, you know, until the 70s, certainly, um, you know, our orchestras and the field in general was... Um, 
has has you know systemically excluded women. Now, women didn't just get better after the mid seventies, right? We we have always been good, um, and we've never been less talented or or less of really any kind. So, it, it, it took an intentional change in approach to shift the emphasis on how we recruited and engaged women in say American orchestras and then beyond, you know, that also fed into other facets of the industry. So in a similar way, you know, men back prior to the seventies could have said, that's just too stressful. You know, gender has no place in these discussions, you know, and what we would end up with would be orchestras and faculty of, of all men. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone would be better for that. So as such, uh, even though it's a much overdue topic and probably a sad comparison to make, but something that, that can translate into a dialogue with somebody who's so cynical to say that there's no, I find it doesn't even come from cynicism. It comes from resistance to change and fear of discomfort, but there can't be progress made without discomfort. In fact, pretty extreme discomfort. If we're used to doing things a particular way, you know, if I've always written with my left hand my entire life and now I'm an adult and someone says it is wrong and immoral and say socially unacceptable to do that, now you got to start writing with your right hand, it'll take a while. But if it's the right thing to do and if it's ultimately going to improve my handwriting, I'm going to do it. So I think we're now in that situation. Ultimately, we do have, we, we, we have a question here. I mean, classical music is... I don't want to say in an alarmist way, it's facing extinction, but it is its relevance and its connection to the community is at a dangerously low point, I would say. And, and it can't be expected to connect and serve without representing. So it's trying to appeal to the right side of humanity and say it's the right thing to do, both for the field, but also for our communities. So we can't afford to just avoid it. I also think many people, because the classical music world is such a small space and everyone kind of knows each other, people are afraid that they will become known as the person that brings up diversity and uh, mm -hmm. will be excluded from certain spaces. But I, I would argue that within our community, there are a lot of people who believe that this issue is important and those people will find a place for you and will see your fight for inclusion as a merit rather than a demerit. Absolutely. I think that's entirely true. And also it comes to integrity, right? I think there's a lot of a lot of conversation about it. And there are people who like to talk about it, some for the right reasons and some maybe not as right reasons. But I think ultimately it falls upon us to do the right thing when no one's looking. Um, so if I'm, if I'm a faculty member at a conservatory, I mean, some of my arguments might fall upon deaf ears. But if I do, you know, if I put 300% of the effort toward recruiting a more diverse class and I succeed, actions will speak louder than words. If I change the canon of what I teach and instead of a million and fifty of Sibelius and Tchaikovsky concertos and Mozart number five and four, um, I begin to really look at what else is there and maybe teach a St. George concerto or, or work by Samuel College Taylor. Um, and Coleridge Taylor Perkinson eventually, and, and infuse that and share that with my colleagues and my students and, um, and really everyone, I think ultimately that's going to be more powerful and probably more impactful um, than any amount of conversing. I think in the classical music space, 
many, especially young musicians, believe that music has to be everything and we can we should only talk about music and we need to show everyone that we're working really hard so i like to end all these conversations with the question um because i want to show the uh, all these musicians that, I, that i'm talking to that they have many sides to them many different interests so are you currently going through any kind of non-musical uh, obsession something that you're obsessed with or something that you're very passionate about at the moment <laughs> that's a great question so I am a um, classic, uh, well, let's see, I'm a closet uh, culinary arts aficionado. So in, in the privacy of my own home, I like to cook as a sense of um, sort of a hobby that provides an outlet and a sense of relief from any sort of stress, stressful situations. So I like to experiment in the kitchen quite a bit, and my family serves as the guinea pigs for that. So um, I, this interesting, in, since March, of course, we've all had both the luxury and the curse of spending more time at home. Um, so one of the areas of obsession has been experimenting with pretty much every um, new recipe that comes out in the New York Times Sunday edition of what to cook this weekend. So <laughs> that's been that's been an obsession, and I found ways to... Um, kind of incorporate different tastes and cultures that aren't part of the um, regular palette here at home. And, and that's been incredibly rewarding and educational. I'm sure you get this all the time, but I'd just like to add my voice to the chorus and saying thank you so much for everything you're doing and all the work you're doing. I am personally inspired to go out and do more and do all that I can to help equalize our field. Oh, well, thank you. And, and thank you for the work you're doing and for illuminating this really important issue. It's, it's a great time to do it. And, and thank you for your commitment. That was my conversation with the president and artistic director of the Sphinx organization, Ms. Afa Dworkin. If you would like to find out more about the Sphinx organization, please visit their website at sphinxmusic.org. Thank you very much for tuning into the podcast. If you have any questions you would like discussed on the show or any guests you would like to hear, please email me at confuocopodcast at gmail.com. Confuoco is produced by me, Daniel Cho. See you next week.